0: Chapter Ten, Part One of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One by Jacomo Casanova. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One: The Venetian Years by Jacomo Casanova. Episode Two, Cleric in Naples, Chapter Ten, Part One. Monsieur Delacroix, being very ill, his daughter, Barbara, gave me my lesson. When it was over, she seized an opportunity of slipping a letter into my pocket, and immediately disappeared, so that I had no chance of refusing. The letter was addressed to me, and expressed feelings of the warmest gratitude. She only desired me to inform her lover that her father had spoken to her again, and that most likely he would engage as new servant as soon as he had recovered from his illness, "'and she concluded her letter by assuring me "'that she never would implicate me in this business. "'Her father was compelled to keep his bed for a fortnight, "'and Barbara continued to give me my lesson every day. "'I felt for her an interest which, for me towards a young and pretty girl, "'was, indeed, quite a new sentiment. "'It was a feeling of pity, and I was proud of being able to help and comfort her. "'Her eyes never rested upon mine, her hand never met mine, "'I never saw in her toilette the slightest wish to please me. She was very pretty, and I knew she had a tender, loving nature, but nothing interfered with the respect and the regard which I was bound in honour and in good faith to feel towards her, and I was proud to remark that she never thought me capable of taking advantage of her weakness or of her position. When the father had recovered, he dismissed his servant and engaged another. Barbara entreated me to inform her friend of the circumstance, and likewise of her hope to gain the new servant to their interests at least sufficiently, to secure the possibility of carrying on some correspondence. I promised to do so, and as a mark of her gratitude she took my hand to carry it to her lips, but quickly withdrawing it I tried to kiss her. She turned her face away, blushing deeply. I was much pleased with her modesty. Barbara having succeeded in gaining the new servant over, I had nothing more to do with the intrigue, and I was very glad of it, for I knew my interference might have brought evil on my own head. "'Unfortunately, it was already too late. "'I seldom visited Don Gaspard. "'The study of the French language took up all my mornings, "'and it was only in the morning that I could see him. "'But I called every evening upon Father Georgi, "'and, although I went to him only as one of his protégés, "'it gave me some reputation. "'I seldom spoke before his guests, yet I never felt weary, "'for in his circle his friends would criticise without slandering, "'discuss politics without stubbornness, and literature without passion, "'and I profited by all. "'After my visit to the sagacious monk "'I used to attend the assembly of the cardinal, "'my master, as a matter of duty. "'Almost every evening, "'when she happened to see me at her card-table, "'the beautiful marchioness would address to me "'a few gracious words in French, "'and I always answered in Italian, "'not caring to make her laugh before so many persons. "'My feelings for her were of a singular kind. "'I must leave them to the analysis of the reader. "'I thought that woman charming,' yet I avoided her. It was not because I was afraid of falling in love with her. I loved Lucrezia, and I firmly believed that such an affection was a shield against any other attachment. But it was because I feared that she might love me or have a passing fancy for me. Was it self-conceit or modesty, vice or virtue? Perhaps neither one nor the other. One evening she desired the abbé Gamma to call me to her. She was standing near the cardinal, my patron, and the moment I approached her she caused me a strange feeling of surprise by asking me in Italian a question which I was far from anticipating. "'How do you like Frascati?' "'Very much, madam. I have never seen such a beautiful place.' "'But your company was still more beautiful, and your vis-à-vis was very smart.' I only bowed low to the marchioness, and a moment after Cardinal Acquaviva said to me kindly— you are astonished at your adventure being known. No, my lord, but I am surprised that people should talk of it. I could not have believed Rome to be so much like a small village. The longer you live in Rome, said his eminence, the more you will find it so. Have you not yet presented yourself to kiss the foot of our holy father? Not yet, my lord. Then you must do so. I bowed in compliance to his wishes. The abbe Gama told me to present myself to the pope on the morrow, and he added. "'Of course you have already shown yourself in the Marchioness G.'s palace. "'No, I have never been there.' "'You astonish me, but she often speaks to you.' "'I have no objection to go with you. "'I never visit at her palace.' "'Yet she speaks to you likewise.' "'Yes, but—' "'You do not know Rome. Go alone. Believe me, you ought to go.' "'Will she receive me?' "'You are joking, I suppose. Of course it is out of the question for you to be announced.' "'You will call when the doors are wide open to everybody. "'You will meet there all those who pay homage to her. "'Will she see me?' "'No doubt of it.' "'On the following day I proceeded to Monte Cavallo, "'and I was at once led into the room where the Pope was alone. "'I threw myself on my knees and kissed the Holy Cross on his most holy slipper. "'The Pope, inquiring who I was, I told him, "'and he answered that he knew me, congratulating me upon my being in the service of so eminent a cardinal.' He asked me how I had succeeded in gaining the cardinal's favour. I answered with a faithful recital of my adventures from my arrival at Martorano. He laughed heartily at all I said respecting the poor and worthy bishop, and remarked that, instead of trying to address him in Tuscan, I could speak in the Venetian dialect, as he was himself speaking to me in the dialect of Bologna. I felt quite at my ease with him, and I told him so much news and amused him so well, that the Holy Father kindly said that he would be glad to see me whenever I presented myself at Monte Cavallo. I begged his permission to read all forbidden books, and he granted it with his blessing, saying that I should have the permission in writing, but he forgot it. Benedict the Fourteenth was a learned man, very amiable, and fond of a joke. I saw him for the second time at the Via Medicis. He called me to him, and continued his walk, Speaking of trifling things, he was then accompanied by Cardinal Albani and the ambassador from Venice. A man of modest appearance approached His Holiness, who asked what he required. The man said a few words in a low voice, and, after listening to him, the Pope answered, You are right, place your trust in God, and he gave him his blessing. The poor fellow went away very dejected, and the Holy Father continued his walk. This man, I said, most holy father, has not been pleased with the answer of your holiness. Why? Because most likely he had already addressed himself to God before he ventured to apply to you, and when your holiness sends him to God again, he finds himself sent back, as the proverb says, from Herod to Pilate. The Pope, as well as his two companions, laughed heartily, but I kept a serious countenance. I cannot, continued the Pope, do any good without God's assistance. Very true, holy father. But the man is aware that you are God's prime minister, and it is easy to imagine his trouble now that the minister sends him again to the master. His only resource is to give money to the beggars of Rome, who, for one baiocco will pray for him. They boast of their influence before the throne of the Almighty, but, as I have faith only in your credit, I entreat your holiness to deliver me of the heat which inflames my eyes by granting me permission to eat meat. Eat meat, my son! "'Holy Father, give me your blessing.' He blessed me, adding that I was not dispensed from fasting. That very evening, at the Cardinal's assembly, I found that the news of my dialogue with the Pope was already known. Everybody was anxious to speak to me. I felt flattered, but I was much more delighted at the joy which Cardinal Acquaviva tried in vain to conceal.' As I wished not to neglect Gamma's advice, I presented myself at the mansion of the beautiful Marchioness at the hour at which every one had free access to her ladyship. I saw her, I saw the cardinal and a great many abbeys, but I might have supposed myself invisible, for no one honoured me with a look, and no one spoke to me. I left after having performed for half an hour the character of a mute. Five or six days afterwards the Marchioness told me graciously that she had caught a sight of me in her reception rooms. I was there, it is true, madam, but I had no idea that it had the honour to be seen by your ladyship. Oh, I see everybody. They tell me that you have wit. If it is not a mistake on the part of your informants, your ladyship gives me very good news. Oh, they are excellent judges. Then, madam, those persons must have honoured me with their conversation, otherwise it is not likely that they would have been able to express such an opinion. No doubt, but let me see you often at my receptions. Our conversation had been overheard by those who were around. His Excellency the Cardinal told me that, when the Marchioness addressed herself particularly to me in French, my duty was to answer her in the same language, good or bad. The cunning politician Gamma took me apart, and remarked that my repartees were too smart, too cutting, and that, after a time, I would be sure to displease. I had made considerable progress in French, I had given up my lessons, and practice was all I required i was then in the habit of calling sometimes upon lucrezia in the morning and of visiting in the evening father georgi who was acquainted with the excursion to fascati and had not expressed any dissatisfaction two days after the sort of command laid upon me by the marchioness i presented myself at a reception as soon as she saw me she favored me with a smile which i acknowledged by a deep reverence that was all in a quarter of an hour afterwards i left the mansion the marchioness was beautiful but she was powerful and I could not make up my mind to crawl at the feet of power, and, on that head, I felt disgusted with the manners of the Romans. One morning, towards the end of November, the advocate, accompanied by Angelique's intended, called on me. The latter gave me a pressing invitation to spend twenty-four hours at Tivoli with the friends I had entertained at Frascati. I accepted with great pleasure, for I had found no opportunity of being alone with Lucrezia since the festival of St. Ursula i promised to be at donna cecilia's house at daybreak with the same vis-a-vis it was necessary to start very early because tivoli is sixteen miles from rome and has so many objects of interest that it requires many hours to see them all as i had to sleep out that night i craved permission to do so from the cardinal himself who hearing with whom i was going told me that i was quite right not to lose such an opportunity of visiting that splendid place in such good society the first dawn of day found me with my vis-a-vis, and four at the door of Donna Cecilia, who came with me as before. The charming widow, notwithstanding her strict morality, was delighted at my love for her daughter. The family rode in a large phaeton, hired by Don Francesco, which gave room for six persons. At half-past seven in the morning we made a halt at a small place where had been prepared, by Don Francesco's orders, an excellent breakfast, which was intended to replace the dinner, and we all made a hearty meal, as we were not likely to find time for anything but supper at Tivoli. I wore on my finger the beautiful ring which Lucrezia had given me. At the back of the ring I had had a piece of animal placed. On it was delineated a Sardutius, with one serpent between the letters Alpha and Omega. This ring was the subject of conversation during breakfast, and Don Francisco, as well as the advocate, exerted himself in vain to guess the meaning of the hieroglyphs to the amusement of Lucrezia, "'who understood the mysterious secret so well. "'We continued our road, "'and reached Tivoli at ten o'clock. "'We began by visiting Don Francisco's villa. "'It was a beautiful little house, "'and we spent the following six hours "'in examining together the antiquities of Tivoli. "'Lucrezia, having occasion to whisper a few words to Don Francisco, "'I seized the opportunity of telling Angelique "'that after her marriage I should be happy "'to spend a few days of the fine season with her. "'Sir,' she answered, I give you fair notice that the moment I become mistress in this house, you will be the very first person to be excluded. I feel greatly obliged to you, signora, for your timely notice. But the most amusing part of the affair was that I construed Angelique's wanton insult into a declaration of love. I was astounded. Lucrezia, remarking the state I was in, touched my arm, inquiring what ailed me. I told her, and she said at once, My darling! My happiness cannot last long. The cruel moment of our separation is drawing near. When I have gone, pray undertake the task of compelling her to acknowledge her error. Angelique pities me. Be sure to avenge me. I have forgotten to mention that at Don Francisco's villa I happened to praise a very pretty room opening upon the orange house, and the amiable host, having heard me, came obligingly to me, and said that it should be my room that night. Lucrezia feigned not to hear, but it was to her Ariadne's clue, for, as we were to remain altogether during our visit to the beauties of Tivoli, we had no chance of a -a tete-a-tete through the day. I have said that we devoted six hours to an examination of the antiquities of Tivoli, but I am bound to confess here that I saw, for my part, very little of them, and it was only twenty-eight years later that I made a thorough acquaintance with the beautiful spot. We returned to the villa towards evening, fatigued and very hungry, but an hour's rest before supper a repast which lasted two hours, the most delicious dishes, the most exquisite wines, and particularly the excellent wine of Tivoli, restored us so well that everybody wanted nothing more than a good bed, and the freedom to enjoy the bed according to his own taste. As everybody objected to sleep alone, Lucrezia said that she would sleep with Angelique in one of the rooms leading to the orange-house, and proposed that her husband should share a room with the young Abbey, his brother-in-law and that Donna Cecilia should take her youngest daughter with her. The arrangement met with general approbation, and Don Francisco, taking a candle, escorted me to my pretty little room adjoining the one in which the two sisters were to sleep, and, after showing me how I could lock myself in, he wished me good night and left me alone. Angelique had no idea that I was her near neighbor, but Lucrezia and I, without exchanging a single word on the subject, had perfectly understood each other. I watched through the keyhole, and saw the two sisters come into their room, preceded by the polite Don Francisco, who carried a taper, and, after lighting a night-lamp, bade them good-night and retired. Then my two beauties, their door once locked, sat down on the sofa, and completed their night toilette, which, in that fortunate climate, is similar to the costume of our first mother. Lucrezia, knowing that I was waiting to come in, told her sister to lie down on the side towards the window and the Virgin, having no idea that she was exposing her most secret beauties to my profane eyes, crossed the room in a state of complete nakedness. Lucrezia put out the lamp and lay down near her innocent sister. Happy moments, which I can no longer enjoy, but the sweet remembrance of which death alone can make me lose. I believe I never undressed myself as quickly as I did that evening. I opened the door and fall into the arms of my Lucrezia, who says to her sister, it is my angel my love never mind him and go to sleep what a delightful picture i could offer to my readers if it were possible for me to paint voluptuousness in its most enchanting colors what ecstasies of love from the very onset what delicious raptures succeeded each other until the sweetest fatigue made us give way to the soothing influence of morpheus the first rays of the sun piercing through the crevices of the shutters Wake us out of our refreshing slumbers, and like two valorous knights who have ceased fighting only to renew the contest with increased ardour, we lose no time in giving ourselves up to all the intensity of the flame which consumes us. Oh, my beloved Lucrezia, how supremely happy I am! But, my darling, mind your sister, she might turn round and see us. Fear nothing, my life. My sister is kind, she loves me, she pities me. "'Do you not love me, my dear Angelique? "'Oh, turn round, see how happy her sister is, "'and know what felicity awaits you "'when you own the sway of love.' "'Angelique, a young maiden of seventeen summers, "'must have suffered the torments of Tantalus during the night, "'and who only wishes for a pretext to show "'that she has forgiven her sister, "'turns round, and covering her sister with kisses, "'confesses that she has not closed her eyes through the night. "'Then forgive likewise, darling Angelique, Forgive him who loves me, and whom I adore, says Lucretia, unfathomable power of the god who conquers all human beings. Angelique hates me, I say. I dare not. No, I do not hate you, answers the charming girl. Kiss her, dearest, says Lucrezia, pushing me towards her sister, and pleased to see her in my arms motionless and languid. But sentiment, still more than love, forbids me to deprive Lucrezia of the proof of my gratitude, and I turn to her with all the rapture of a beginner, feeling that my ardour is increased by Angelique's ecstasy, as for the first time she witnesses the amorous contest. Lucrezia, dying of enjoyment, entreats me to stop, but, as I do not listen to her prayer, she tricks me, and the sweet Angelique makes her first sacrifice to the mother of love, It is thus very likely that when the gods inhabited this earth, the voluptuous Arcadia, in love with the soft and pleasing breath of Zephyrus, one day opened her arms and was fecundated. Lucrezia was astonished and delighted, and covered us both with kisses. Angelique, as happy as her sister, expired deliciously in my arms for the third time, and she seconded me with so much loving ardour that it seemed to me I was tasting happiness for the first time. Phoebus had left the nuptial couch, and his rays were already diffusing light over the universe, and that light, reaching us through the closed shutters, gave me warning to quit the place. We exchanged the most loving adieus. I left my two divinities and retired to my own room. A few minutes afterwards the cheerful voice of the advocate was heard in the chamber of the sisters. He was reproaching them for sleeping too long. Then he knocked at my door, threatening to bring the ladies to me, and went away, saying that he would send me the hairdresser. After many ablutions and a careful toilette, I thought I could show my face, and I presented myself coolly in the drawing-room. The two sisters were there with the other members of our society, and I was delighted with their rosy cheeks. Lucrezia was frank and gay, and beamed with happiness. Angelique, as fresh as the morning dew, was more radiant than usual, but fidgety, and carefully avoided looking me in the face i saw that my useless attempts to catch her eyes made her smile and i remarked to her mother rather mischievously that it was a pity angelique used paint for her face she was duped by this stratagem and compelled me to pass a handkerchief over her face and was then obliged to look at me i offered her my apologies and don francisco appeared highly pleased that the complexion of his intended had met with such triumph after breakfast we took a walk through the garden and finding myself alone with lucrezia I expostulated tenderly with her, for having almost thrown her sister in my arms. Do not reproach me, she said, when I deserve praise. I have brought light into the darkness of my charming sister's soul. I have initiated her in the sweetest of mysteries, and now, instead of pitying me, she must envy me. Far from having hatred for you, she must love you dearly, and as I am so unhappy as to have to part from you very soon, my beloved, I leave her to you. She will replace me. Ah, Lucrezia, how can I love her? Is she not a charming girl? No doubt of it, but my adoration for you is a shield against any other love. Besides, Don Francisco must, of course, entirely monopolize her, and I do not wish to cause coolness between them or to ruin the peace of their home. I am certain your sister is not like you, and I would bet that, even now, she abrades herself for having given way to the ardor of her temperament. Most likely. But, dearest, I am sorry to say my husband expects to obtain judgment in the course of this week, and then the short instance of happiness will for ever be lost to me. This was sad news indeed, and to cause a diversion at the breakfast table, I took much notice of the generous Don Francisco, and promised to compose a nuptial song for his wedding day, which had been fixed for the early part of January. We returned to Rome, and for the three hours that she was with me in my vis-a-vis, Lucrezia had no reason to think that my ardour was at all abated, but when we reached the city I was rather fatigued and proceeded at once to the palace. Lucrezia had guessed rightly. Her husband obtained his judgment three or four days afterwards, and called upon me to announce their departure for the day after the morrow. He expressed his warm friendship for me, and by his invitation I spent the two last evenings with Lucrezia. But we were always surrounded by the family. The day of her departure, wishing to cause her an agreeable surprise, I left Rome before them, and waited for them at the place where I thought they would put up for the night. But the advocate, having been detained by several engagements, was detained in Rome, and they only reached the place next day for dinner. We dined together, we exchanged a sad, painful farewell, and they continued their journey while I returned to Rome. After the departure of this charming woman... I found myself in sort of solitude, very natural to a young man whose heart is not full of hope. I passed whole days in my room, making extracts from the French letters written by the Cardinal, and his eminence was kind enough to tell me that my extracts were judiciously made, but that he insisted upon my not working so hard. The beautiful marchioness was present when he paid me that compliment. Since my second visit to her I had not presented myself at her house. She was consequently rather cool to me, and, glad of an opportunity of making me feel her displeasure, she remarked to his eminence that very likely work was a consolation to me in the great void caused by the departure of Donna Lucrezia. "'I candidly confess, madam, that I have felt her loss deeply. She was kind and generous. Above all, she was indulgent when I did not call often upon her. My friendship for her was innocent. "'I have no doubt of it, although your ode was the work of a poet deeply in love.' Oh, said the kindly cardinal, a poet cannot possibly write without professing to be in love. But, replied the marchioness, if the poet is really in love, he has no need of professing a feeling which he possesses. As she was speaking, the marchioness drew out of her pocket a paper which she offered to his eminence. This is the ode, she said. It does great honour to the poet, for it is admitted to be a masterpiece by all the literati in Rome, and Donna Lucrezia knows it by heart. The cardinal read it over, and returned it, smiling, and remarking that, as he had no taste for Italian poetry, she must give herself the pleasure of translating it into French rhyme if she wished him to admire it. "'I only write French prose,' answered the marchioness, "'and a prose translation destroys half the beauty of poetry. I am satisfied with writing occasionally a little Italian poetry without any pretension to poetical fame.' "'Those words were accompanied by a very significant glance in my direction. "'I should consider myself fortunate, madam, "'if I could obtain the happiness of admiring some of your poetry.' "'Here is a sonnet of her ladyship's,' said Cardinal S. C. I took it respectfully, and I prepared to read it, "'but the amiable marchioness told me to put it in my pocket "'and return it to the cardinal the next day, "'although she did not think the sonnet worth so much trouble. "'If you should happen to go out in the morning,' said Cardinal S.C., you could bring it back and dine with me. Cardinal Aquaviva immediately answered for me. He'll be sure to go out purposely. End of chapter 10, part 1